one of the things that I've been thinking about got me thinking um, as as we approach. Pastor Bob was talking about this a couple weeks ago um, during his message. But anytime we come to Holy Week, we're, we're always encouraged to prepare ourselves, right? Prepare our hearts, prepare our hearts for Easter, for Good Friday. In fact, that's what the whole Holy Week is, is preparing ourselves to celebrate on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and not just walk into it like, oh yeah, was that today? But, but, but we're thinking about it. We're, we're preparing ourselves. And I think there's a biblical model of that. And as I was thinking about it this week, what immediately came to mind was the very first two episodes in the Gospel of Matthew. These are preparatory episodes. We're we're told as we read this, I think we'll see this tonight. These are preparatory moments that Jesus has in order to endure the cross. They're, they're, They're pointing toward that, though they're at the very beginning of his ministry. So this is Jesus also preparing to not just experience and, and think about it and reflect, but actually to go through it. So um, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn them on, we'll also have it up on the screen there. Is that size okay? Can you guys read in the back? That's all right. Okay. Um, I want us to read the two episodes are, um, and it's the very first thing that Matthew records outside of Jesus's infancy. So this is the the man Jesus after the infancy events. We're told that um, if you remember, Jesus and his parents flee to Egypt, right? Because of Herod. Um, And they stay there for a while. And then Joseph has another uh, angelic vision or dream of some sort saying, Herod's dead. Those, Those who sought to kill your son are gone. You can come back. And so they come back. They find out one of his sons, Archelaus, is still ruling the area. They're still a little nervous. Joseph is warned in another dream. Don't go there. So that's that's where he moves to Nazareth. And then it's sort of a fast forward kind of thing. And Matthew in chapter three picks up on, and we're going to read this here, um, where John the Baptist is also an adult and Jesus is an adult and he's going to come to him. And there's this baptism moment or this episode. So let's read some of this and then we'll come back and reflect on some pieces here. This is Matthew chapter three. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. We'll look at where that is in a second here. Here's his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you've read the gospels, you know, Jesus starts with that same message. Jesus is lining up with this exact same message here. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said this, and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And then this description. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts, just large grasshoppers. They still eat these in the Middle East today. Aren't you glad you don't live in that part of the Middle East? Wild honey, which is just what it sounds like. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Verse 7 says, But when uh, he saw many of the Pharisees, Sadducees, coming to his baptism. Now, you don't know, are they coming to get baptized? Are they just observing? But they've come from Jerusalem. He said to them, you brood of vipers. Now, again, if you've read Jesus' words, he uses this exact same language. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut off and thrown into the fire. And then he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the first thing, let's talk about kind of where this is going on. Um, let me show you kind of an image here to let you get the general idea of where this is happening. We're told that this is in the uh, wilderness of Judea. So do you see, you see the, um, the Sea of Galilee up top? You see the top northern portion of the Dead Sea at the bottom. And of course, you see the Jordan River connecting those two. At the bottom, Jerusalem is pretty much equal with the northern side of the Dead Sea, but just a number of miles to the west. That area between Jerusalem and sort of the top of the Dead Sea, kind of where the Jordan is, that's where this Judea, that's where the tribe of Judea had that allotment in the Old Testament. So the wilderness of Judea is sort of that stretch in between that area. So the traditional site for those, some of you have have been on our um, Israel trip and we go down to um, right around, can you see where this is? Right around, well, yeah, around here, this is where the traditional site for uh, John's baptism is. So that's where we do our baptisms in that area right there, just directly east of Jerusalem. Now, um, well, we see a couple things in here. First of all, we see a description of John, which is kind of interesting. Um, Put this away and bring this one back. Um, We see a description that he's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. Uh, the belt just sort of wraps up to hold everything together. But this description is, is an exact description that was made uh, of a prophet in the Old Testament. There's this uh, situation where a king is sending someone to go find out about this prophet, and they go, and he turns them back and says, you know, you're going to be judged. And they return to the king, and the king's like, well, who was it? And he says, well, uh, they answered him. He wore a garment like hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elisha the Tishbite. So this John the Baptist is intentionally garbing himself to look like one of these Old Testament prophets. Um, and of course, these Old Testament prophets, if you know anything about Elijah, some of the stories that, that, that come to mind, whether it be him confronting these false prophets, uh, Israelites, who are now prophets of Baal or Baal, and this sort of um, supernatural exchange going on there. So he's, he's taking on the garb of that. But all the language he's using is a language of Isaiah. And he keeps using a language of Isaiah. And we'll kind of see why that is here as we go. So he's this sort of mixture. He's this Elijah, Isaiah character, looking like Elijah, but acting as far as what he's doing like Isaiah. And then we read that um, he's doing a baptism for repentance. Now, normally when a Jew would, would, seek, would seek forgiveness, where, where do you suppose they would do it? 
at the temple. That's where you make sacrifices. So when you seek repentance, you would do it in the city in Jerusalem. And of course, that's why we saw it, it said the religious leaders are coming out from the city. I mean, like, why are you doing it here? <laughs> this is sort of an interesting place of why you would. So why the Jordan? Why would John choose the Jordan of all places? Baptism isn't something new. There's ritual um, washings done within the Jewish faith in these little ritual baths, mikvaot. But why in the Jordan River? What's, what's going on there? Where was it that Israel... When they, when they went into the promised land, first they were going to go into the promised land. They sent spies in, right? The 12, 10 of them come back and be like, no way, we can't do it. Consequence, they wander for 40 years. But what's, what's the last barrier that they hit before they go into the land? It's the Jordan River. And of course, we know the event where they're carrying the ark and once the priests step in, the water dries up and they walk across on dry land. This is a renewal ceremony. John is specifically picking the Jordan River because it's this, our parents failed to go in. In fact, even when they got in, they, they failed to, to drive out the inhabitants to kill the remaining um, giant clan that was there. And so it's this picture of, of, of failure. And so being baptized in the Jordan River, it's, it's a picture of renewal ceremony, we, we want another shot. <laughs> we want another chance as we seek to follow you with believing loyalty. Um, let's jump down to, let's go back to this passage and see what comes next here. Verse 13, uh, just through 17. This is the baptism. Then Jesus came from Galilee uh, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, right, there's a question, right? We just found out the baptism is one of repentance and he wants to get baptized. So a question should be kind of lingering in your mind. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up out of the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, why was Jesus baptized? The answer we're given in the text is verse 15 where it says to fulfill all righteousness to Jesus used a lot of language. Like I have not come to abolish right Torah, but he uses fulfill. He's completing something. Something's incomplete is the idea. Now there are lots of different theories, you know, why he was doing that sort of thing. Let me just kind of, and I think you'll see this as we go here. Here's what I think is going on. Jesus is identifying himself with Israel. In fact, even more strongly, I would say he's identifying himself as Israel. He, he is living the perfect Israelite life. He's the ideal Israelite. So it's a, it's a matter of identifying himself with Israel. And again, we'll see that even more clearly through the second episode that comes here. Um, in chapter two, Matthew has already, in fact, let me just 
scroll back there, chapter two, look how Matthew identifies Jesus with Israel. This is that story that I sort of gave the summary of that he's in Egypt. And look what Matthew says. It's sort of weird. He says, uh, and he rose and took the child, this is Joseph, and his mother by the night departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, what's weird, you might think, well, wait a minute, I've read that passage, but that's not a prophecy. So like, what is that about? We'll get that in a second. But do you see the idea that Matthew is saying, as Israel was the son of God, Jesus is more so. Jesus is identifying himself with Israel in a, in a full way. And he just keeps the identification keeps growing and growing. Now, this is something that's again, helpful to realize is that there's, there's what's called a prophecy. And then there's what's called a typology or a type. Okay. Here's, here's the difference. A prophecy is a verbal prediction. A type or a typology is a nonverbal prediction. So there are many types, meaning nothing was said like, oh, this is also going to happen to someone in the future. But it's, it's a type. It's something that happens. And then in the future, something happens like, oh, that looks just like that, or that's similar to it, or that's in the same vein. Does that make sense? So there are many typologies in the Old Testament. Um, biblical authors say Jesus is a type of Adam because through, through Adam's behavior, sin entered the world, Right? He, he, he gave in. He says, well, Jesus is a type of Adam. He too is tested. He's going to be tested here. But through him, he opens up redemption. He opens up heaven, eternity. Does that make sense? So he's a type of Adam. And, and, and so that's kind of what's going on there as we think about that. Verse 16, um, let me go back to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 16. Um, this is where we read that the spirit descends as a dove. Now this, this outpouring of the Holy spirit, this does not change Jesus's status in any way. He doesn't, he doesn't become something at this moment. Uh, new rights aren't assigned to him. This happens to identify him as the one talked about in the old Testament. It's so that certainly John would know, and if there were others around, so that they would see, but it certainly affirms it to John and his ministry. It identifies him as the son, and we'll talk about this in a second, and the servant, the suffering servant, the Davidic son and the suffering servant. So it makes it clear, and this marks the beginning of his ministry and marks the beginning of this confrontation with cosmic evil divine powers. Satan that we're going to enter, uh, see here in just a moment. So in verse 17, this language where he says, this is my son in whom, I, whom I'm well pleased. Here's, here's, here's what scholars will tell you. What Matthew or what Matthew is recording, what this voice affirms that's coming out of the Old Testament is two passages. It's, it's two passages uh, pulling together. They are, um, Psalm chapter two is, is a, uh, a messianic Davidic Psalm. What I mean by that is this, when David was going to die, Yahweh says to him, your son will become my son, which is this, I mean, there's no higher honor than that. Basically what he's saying is he's going to be mine, like uniquely mine. He's already called Israel, my son, but the King is going to be specially my son. 
And then he even goes on to say, but you know what? When he disobeys me, I'm going to treat him like my son. I'm going to discipline him. Okay. So this is language used for Solomon, but then it gets applied to ideally the next king and the next king and the next king. Okay. This is the language that said, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. He's using familial language to Solomon and then ideally apply to the others. But this becomes a Davidic idea, messianic Davidic idea that the king, the one who has the power will be in this unique relationship with Yahweh. Okay. So he uses that phrase that this voice comes from heaven. You are my son. He's borrowing from this. The other half of what he says comes from Isaiah 42 that he says of Isaiah, he says, behold, my servant, he's speaking not of Jesus. He's speaking of Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I uphold with chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Okay. So these are types. (laughs) And what God is doing is he's pulling together Davidic, powerful, strong king warrior wins in the end. Suffering servant, because as you keep going and reading what he's describing, this suffering servant is this guy's basically going to take the punishment that everyone else deserves. And because of this punishment, he's going to set them right. So he's taking two identities and he's blending them in a way that they've never been blended before. Which if you think about it, that is a weird thing to blend. Winner, loser. (laughs) Together. Those seem to not fit. But what Yahweh says to Jesus, you're my boy. David King, and you're the one who's going to die and seemingly lose. So they're, they're an odd thing to put together, but that's exactly what he does here. And um, what's, what's interesting is the temptation in a couple of verses here, we get to, we get to Satan, Satan in the third temptation, he's going to say, why don't you embrace one half of that coin? You can sidestep the other one. <laughs> You can be the all-powerful championing king, but that, that one's too hard. But you can still get this. So this is kind of what's setting up what's going to happen next. But this voice affirms both this united Davidic messianic role as well as this suffering servant. So let's go back to Matthew and chapter 4. This is the temptation. So the first episode, the baptism by John. And we saw some of the key things that are set up there. His identity is um, affirmed as to what, what he's going to embrace. He's going to embrace both, both Davidic king and suffering servant. That's at least what's set up for him. He knows that's his role. But what he steps into next is going to be the very question. It's, it's going to steal that. It's going to prove that and determine that. So chapter four, let's read... Um, just one through 11. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days, 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Second one, then the devil took him to the holy city, speaking of Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, 
if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. And he quotes scripture. He will command his angels concerning you and uh, on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written also in scripture. You shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. Third one, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He's actually going up an elevation here, kind of as it goes, um, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God, and him only shall you serve. Then we read, the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him there. Now, for, let's again, go back and even just think about the location of this. He, he's, he's, and if you think about this, he's, he, again, he's reenacting Israel's story. <laughs> he goes through the waters of the Jordan, right? But it's in reverse. He's driven out into the desert. And this kind of brings us back to, to some of this, um, something we've talked about here in on Wednesday night communities as cosmic geography, right? Cosmic geography. If you remember, uh, there was a, a message that we um, had, I'm trying to think of, it was a while ago. It was, oh, it was the Jesus behaving badly series. And you remember the incident where Jesus casts out the demon from demons, many from the demoniac and sends them into the swine, into the, into the pig. And in that we kind of laid the groundwork if you want to go back and listen to really kind of put these pieces together. But this idea that um, desert areas, wilderness areas were thought of in the ancient, uh, to the ancient Hebrews as sort of, they're like the anti-Eden. And so that, that's where you would send things that weren't pure, that were impure. Um, certain of those areas, there, there were certain, um, these rebellious divine beings who were, were, were spoken of as like, that's kind of where they are. So even though this is Judea, this is Yahweh's place, but the wilderness always has that connotation, that experience. And so he's driven out to that area. Um, and again, he's, you know, many, many people say another reason this, like this is how he is a type of Adam. Adam was in a garden and gave into it. Jesus is in a desert area and he overcomes it. So he's this sort of ideal Adam that Adam couldn't be. But more importantly than that, than the cosmic geography piece, um, how many years was it that the Israelites wandered in the desert? 40 years. How many days is Jesus driven out into the wilderness? 40 days. I mean, do you see these two mapping on each other? <laughs> he goes into the wilderness, 40 days. They were in there 40 years. He's, again, he's living out being Israel. He's, a, he's identifying himself in as clear way as possible. I'm going to do, I'm going to be Israel, but I'm going to succeed. And what Israel was called to do and failed in, I will do and succeed for them. This has to do with identification. So Jesus is identifying again with Israel, but as Israel being sort of this perfect Israelite showing uh, divine or showing believing loyalty in a way that Israel never did. Okay, now the three temptations. Let's go back to those. The first one is, um, let's see, that's verse two. Yeah. Uh, here we go. 
After fasting 40 days, he was hungry. The tempter came to him. If you are the son of God, commanded these stones to become loaves. And he answers him with this. He cites um, a place in Deuteronomy. What's interesting is all of Jesus's citations are Deuteronomy. All of Deuteronomy is about Israel blowing it in the wilderness. (laughs) So he has in mind that time period. Again, he's living this out. And so this is what we read. This is, this is kind of what he's referring to. Um, The whole uh, commandment that I give you today, this is Yahweh speaking to Israel. They're going to go into the land, cross the waters. Um, You shall be careful to do that. You may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord, your God has led you these last 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you. He's talking about during those 40 years and he let you hunger, but fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know this truth. This is why he allowed you to be hungry. (laughs) Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every single word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This was a temptation on Jesus's part back in Matthew to, to use his sonship in a way that was inconsistent with what the father had planned for him to do. Do you remember how many times you, you hear Jesus say things like this in the gospels where he says, I have only done what I have seen the father. I've only said to you, what the father has told me to say. He's living in complete obedience saying, I will be utterly dependent on him. I'm not going to access any of my divine abilities that we could. And that's what he's being tempted to do here. Do, do it on your own. Of course, that's human rebellion. That's Genesis three. I will do it on my own. And so he keeps, he gets this taunt and this happens every single time. If you are the son of God, right? In fact, if you, if you go forward to Matthew 27, do you remember Jesus is hanging on the cross? He gets the same taunt, but it's by people. They go, if you're really the son, uh, call down angels to get you down from there. The thief next to him says, yeah, if you really are and get us down while you're at it too. Right? So he gets the same taunt later, but Satan's aim was to entice Jesus to use you could say the powers that were rightly his, um, which he had voluntarily abandoned. You know, it's, it's in one of Paul's letters where writing about this, he says, uh, Jesus emptied himself, right? Uh, becoming a bond servant, making himself in the form of a slave. What Jesus emptied himself of was not his divinity, not even his, um, his ability to do things. He emptied himself of the, the free access to those divine abilities. And that's clear because all throughout scripture, the temptation is use them, which means he could have. So he's not somehow not divine or less than divine. He's, he's the divine man. Uh, He's, he's still truly God and he's truly man. He has all those abilities, but they're sort of veiled. He's, he's giving up the free access to those. And again, that's made clear, clear here by, I think these 
temptations. And of course, what Jesus responds, John chapter four, at another time disconnected from this, but I think kind of connecting thematically, we read that Jesus is, uh, he says, my food is to do the will of my father, that I will absolutely trust him when it looks like I'm, I'm not even sure if I can. I will always stay faithful to him. So that's the first temptation. Um, Israel had the temptation in the, in the wilderness. They gave in to it. Um, Jesus doesn't give in to it. They grumbled about the food. He, he, he's, he's trusting God. You'll feed me when it's necessary. So he's, he, he fulfills the, he passes the test they failed. Number two, the second test, this is in verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you lest you strike your foot against the stone. And of course, what, what Jesus responds to once again, as always, it's in Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy, let's see here, six. Deuteronomy uh, 6.16, let me jump down to there. Um, this is what he, he quotes here. Uh, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Massah was this. Massah was the time when Israel is going through the desert wandering and they get to a place and they don't have water. You remember this? And they've gotten to some places. Now, God has already miraculously done this. He, they got to one place and the water was bitter. And so he tells Moses, he says, throw, throw like a piece of wood in. And all of a sudden it, it turns sweet. It was a miracle by God. This has happened multiple times. They get to another place. And each time it says they grumbled. And what we learn in the story is basically they threatened Moses, we're going to kill you. <laughs> I mean, that's what they said. Moses was worried about his life being taken. So they said, if God really loved us, if God was really behind this, he would meet our needs. That's how they approached it each and every time. So what he's referring to here, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Because you might look at it and be like, well, how is that a test saying I want water? Well, what the test is, is if you really are God, if you really love me, if I'm really your son, you'll provide this and that for me now. Does that make sense? That's the test that's going on here. That's what he's referring to. So for both Israel and Jesus, demanding miraculous protection as proof of God's care, that was wrong. Now, I think there's an immediate application for us. How many of us have this thought, and we, sometimes it's a prayer, sometimes it's a thought, sometimes it's whatever. God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't let this happen to me now. God, if you really died for me and loved me and said, you would, you would do this for me, or you wouldn't allow that to happen. That's putting God to the test. It's saying, if you are, then you must. And that's exactly what they do here. And of course, Jesus does not do that. He passes the test by saying, you don't put God to the test. You trust his timing. You trust his sovereignty. You trust his love. Even when it doesn't look like it's there, you still lean into trust. And we see then that um, one of the things that, that Jesus, uh, it's, it's really a principle of interpreting scripture, which is, I think, a good takeaway here. Because what Jesus says um, when, he, um, when he's told, hey, 
uh, you know, throw yourself off, you know, God will save you. And he says, well, again, it's also written, don't put God to a test. And what Jesus shows us is anytime you come up with an interpretation from a passage of scripture that contradicts something else in scripture, it's not a good interpretation. And so the principle is scripture interprets scripture. There are plenty of passages in scripture that I do not understand. <laughs> there are plenty of passages in scripture that I wrestle with and I struggle with. But if it leads me to some conclusion that say goes against something clear and plain, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only. If, if I come up with some conclusion, well, maybe he doesn't really love me or maybe he isn't really good or maybe I know that can't be true. Something's wrong with that interpretation of the passage. Third one. So um, he passes the first two where Israel failed. It was the exact same tests, uh, testing God. And then this sort of grumbling experience of uh, of the bread demanding that. And then the third one is verse eight. Go to that. Again, this is the last one. The devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What he's going to hear, um, Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. This whole passage, um, I won't read the whole section here for the sake of time. Basically, um, so you're then take, again, they're going into the land. It is the Lord your God. You shall fear him. You shall serve only by his name. You shall swear. Don't attach yourself to these other uh, rebellious gods anyway. So um, the reason the dark spiritual powers, because here's one question. How is it that Satan could give Jesus those places? And we're, we're not told. He says he took him to a high mountain. Um, from any high mountain there, you can't see all the kingdoms of the world. Was this a vision of some sort? Um, could be. Uh, Paul used some language. Remember, Paul had visions sometimes, and sometimes he would say, whether I was in my body or out of my body, meaning like whether I was sitting there experiencing or seeing something like visionary. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> he, he's unsure. Was this something like that? Seems very possible, especially after 40 days of not having food. Two massive treks up to Jerusalem and up to a high mountain would seem very difficult. It's possible, though. We don't really know. We're not told. But what we do know is he says he's shown these different kingdoms, you know, the majesty of, of everything. And he's, he said, I'll give it to you. Now, again, the question is me, like, how does Satan have the authority to give it? And again, this takes us back to what we talked about a few weeks ago, to Babel. Remember that? At Babel, when humanity rebelled and God disinherited them and said, if you don't want me, fine. And he assigns other spiritual beings, the sons of God, they're called, other spiritual beings to these locations. And then we read later in Psalm 82 that these spiritual beings rebelled. And in Psalm 82, we have God judging them, saying, you're going to die like men. But they still have the authority. So Satan has the authority to give this power. It's still under his control. It's not until the cross, according to Paul, Paul says, at the cross, God, dis 
Jesus disarmed the authorities and the powers, right? That's what, but at this point, he still has them. So the temptation for Jesus here, again, is to say, um, you know that voice at the baptism that said, Davidic Messiah, suffering servant? What if you could sidestep one of those? You could still get the Davidic Messiah. You could still get the power, but um, you just have to sidestep something that's uncomfortable. And of course, Jesus passes once again the test that Israel fails to do because what Israel fails to do again and again through their wanderings, even when they're in the land, is they begin to worship Baal. They begin to worship this God. They, they run to the other gods and they serve them again and again. But the temptation Jesus passes. So do you see how Jesus is, he's reenacting Israel's history in these two events. He's identifying himself with them at the baptism. And then he takes on their life. He lives the life of Israel, the call, but he does it perfectly. He does it in a way without failing. And then of course, in uh, verse 11, we have the last statement that's in here. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The word ministered, in most places in the New Testament, the same word, it has to do with serving food. So Jesus says no to the food, but then these supernatural beings come and actually, again, supernaturally give him food here. Um, this is the same thing that happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew mentions this, that after, after praying, um, you know, I love the movie, The Passion. You guys have seen that. It's, it's a marvelous movie. It's absolutely wonderful. The impression you get, though, is that when he's in the garden and, and he prays, that God's sort of like distant. You know, it, it turns dark and it's sort of like there's a break. And what actually happens is as God sends supernatural beings to minister to Jesus there in the garden before he's going to be <clears throat> crucified here. So this angelic help. Let me, let me read this. This is a comment uh, made by one uh, biblical scholar who makes some kind of interesting observations about this. He says, Jesus had refused to relieve his hunger by miraculously turning stones into bread. Now he is fed miraculously. He has, re he has refused to throw himself off the temple heights in the hope of angelic help. Now angels feed him. He had refused to take a shortcut to inherit the kingdom of the world. Now he fulfills scripture by beginning his ministry and announcing the kingdom in Galilee of the Gentiles. So what we see from this passage is Jesus, there's this sort of Israel Christ typology. Jesus comes to fulfill, that's a word we talked about at the beginning, right? What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? It's to do what Israel blew it at. It's to do what we blew it at. And that's, that's really our lives as we follow him. What Satan, Satan is not inviting Jesus to doubt his sonship. This is interesting. Most, you know, you can almost read it like, well, if you really are, the language that's used there, scholars will point out, it's saying that it's sort of like, okay, given, given you are the son of God. He's not asking him to doubt it. He's suggesting merely that Jesus um, needs to, or has the right and the power to satisfy his own needs. He's inviting him to reflect on the meaning. Think about it. You're, you're, you're Jesus. 
You should be able to do that. And I think sometimes I wonder if Satan comes to us that way, asking us to reflect on even true things. Hey, think about it. You're, you're God's child and you're having to deal with this in your life. I don't, I think you should sidestep that. I mean, you're, you're beloved according to scripture. Do you really think God wants you to put up with this difficult circumstance in your life? Do you see that? (laughs) He's bringing up a truth and asking us to reflect on that truth and say, therefore, and have you come to your own conclusion of saying, I shouldn't have to put up with difficulty or suffering or hardship or challenge. I shouldn't have to put up with that because I'm, look who I am. I'm loved by God. (laughs) That's an interesting temptation for him to point out something that is true. Both of these actions, the baptism and then the temptations, both of these actions, they serve again to identify Jesus with Israel. And here's what it leans us to and gets us to. And this is why it's so important for the cross. And I think this is preparatory. It's substitutionary. He's, he's substituting himself, which points to the cross. The cross is, it's many things, but it is certainly substitutionary for us. And so as we prepare ourselves for Easter, I want us to think about this idea that Jesus comes to fully identify with us so that the reverse side, we can fully identify with him. That's the kind of language that Paul constantly uses where he says, the reason you can walk into, he uses temple language, walk into the holy of holies is because you're not coming with your name. (laughs) If you came with your name, you'd be squashed, you'd be dead. You're coming with a new name, Jesus, because he's identified himself with you. You can fully identify yourself with him. One of the things you're going to see on Easter, which I love, it's like one of the highlights of my year, is we do baptisms. And when you think about the image of baptism, when you go under the water, in fact, the language we say is buried with Christ. And the language we say when you come up is raised to new life. The, the reason you're symbolically going underwater is you're saying, my old life is dead with him because I've, I've identified myself with him. And my new life is identified with him post-cross in his life, that my identity is his. And so what I need to learn to do <laughs> is to regularly say, how does my identity become more conformed, as Paul says, to the image of Christ? And sometimes I have to be honest and say, I'm really not that identified with Jesus. I identify with him like on paper, like, yeah, I'm with, (laughs) but daily I'm not learning to map him on to me and me on to him. And I'm learning to find my identity in him. And I'll end as we transition to communion here. Let me end by reading this. And this is a, this is a beautiful picture of the inverse sides of this. Listen to this. At the same time, Jesus' hunger introduces us to a number of ironies, which Matthew more or less explicitly alludes to. Listen to these. Jesus is hungry, but he feeds others. He grows weary, but offers other rest. He is the king, but pays tribute. He is called the devil at one point, but yet he casts out demons. He dies the death of a sinner, but comes to save people from their sins. He is sold for 30 pieces of silver, but gives his life as a ransom for many. 
He will not turn stones to bread for himself, but he gives his body as bread for his people. Isn't that beautiful? That's so beautiful. And so I I hope this has prepared our hearts, not just to take communion now, but as you go into Holy Week, I want you to reflect on these ideas of who has identified himself with you, what he's offered you, and what that should mean in your life. So over these next few moments, I'm going to ask you to take, this will be the last communion we take before Good Friday. So I'll ask you if, you're, if you would like to go to one of the tables, gluten-free in the back, as always, grab the, the, the elements there, take them back to your seat, hold on to them, engage in this song of worship. Maybe it's through singing, maybe it's through prayer, whatever it might be. And at the end of it, I want us to come together. And again, the last time before Good Friday to take communion together, okay? Would you stand with me if you're able to? And as you have the uh, elements in your hand, it's this reminder that uh, Jesus is hungry, but he feeds others. (laughs) Um, And he's Lord of all because of what he was willing to endure. And it's on our behalf. It's out of love for us. And so we take communion, reminding ourselves of his body that was broken and he prepared for it. We looked at how he prepared for it tonight, but he allowed his body to be broken. And so this is a picture of his body broken for us. Let's take break and eat. And in preparation for his blood to be spilled, to embrace the cross, entering a new covenant. Covenants are always opened, started by blood. He entered a new covenant where his spirit actually comes to reside in us and we have access to God, the cup. Heavenly Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you that we could be together tonight. God, would you go with us? Would you prepare our hearts? May this be... If, if, if it's not the start, may it, may it be something of movement in our lives as we move toward Easter and Holy Week. God, may it be something that you do, unique things in our lives. And it's, it's with expectancy that we enter these next few days. And it's out of deep gratefulness and gratitude for what you have done that we say, Father, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys, thanks for being here tonight. Always enjoy Wednesdays. Always just enjoy being with you, seeing your faces and talking with you. So have a great week and see you next Friday.